Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, and down he goes! Right hand, left hand! And I don't think he's going to get up! I think it's all over! I think it's over! Is he going to get up? Can he get up? Can he get up? He does! Oh my goodness! Hello folks and welcome back to the Brawl Boxing Podcast brought to you by the Brawl Network and powered by 92 Degrees and CBD Uplift. I am Kieran McCourt and I'm joined by co-hosts Colin McGuigan and Ram McLaughlin. As always guys, I just want to start by giving a shout out to our first sponsor, 92 Degrees. They are a coffee shop which started over in Liverpool and they're now expanded into various other cities such as Manchester, Leeds and Newcastle. So if you are in any of them cities, please do get yourself there. Their coffee is absolutely amazing. And they've really, really helped us out coming on board. So thanks a million, lads. We appreciate it. Thanks for that, McCourt. Another company which has made this all possible is our other amazing sponsor, CBD Uplift. CBD Uplift is home of the highest quality CBD oil available in the UK. So if you head over to cbduplift.co.uk, you can begin to uplift yourself today using our code BRAWL15 at checkout. And that'll give you 15% off and free shipping. So you can follow them on Instagram um, and Facebook as well there. So also we've got Wow Hydrate on board now, which are a really big company in the UK, doing a lot of protein water and different supplements. Um, so really good to have them on board. And over the coming weeks, we're going to have some giveaways with stuff that they'll be sending us as well. So we're really excited about this next guest. We unfortunately weren't around whenever he was boxing, but we've all heard the stories and watched the video. So we're really excited to have him on. So please welcome former WBC bantamweight champion and Olympic silver medalist, Wayne the Pocket Rocket McCullough. Wayne, how are you doing, mate? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me here. You're making me feel really old now. <laughs> <laughs> no, Wayne, it's a pleasure to have you on here. But see, before we just get into the boxing talk, I just want to know how life is in sunny California because we're, we're all here in the horrific rain and we're all jealous as anything. <laughs> we'll get bring some of the rain here. We need it. It's only rained here <laughs> a few times over the winter. But um, Vegas, the, the winter's here actually pretty pretty cold. Not compared to back home, they're cold maybe five to 10 Celsius. And um, it gets breezy and, and we got snow there about three weeks ago, there was snow. Well, we had, there's snow, it's snowing here today. What? It's snowing in Belfast today. I swear to God, 26th of March and it's snowing tonight in Belfast. That's, the, that's good for Easter coming up. Seriously, they have a ski resort here about 45 minutes away. And because Vegas is actually at altitude, so it's about 2,000 feet high on the, on the strip. About 2,700 feet up here, Riley. So you get the you get the snow in the, in the summertime. Of course, you've got four months of, of hell, summer, summer. <laughs> so you're in, you're in Vegas right now, then when? Yeah, yeah. Oh, some life. I'm jealous. What a life. <laughs> For anyone listening and not on the YouTube video, go and watch the YouTube because Wayne's backdrop is the best yet. Like he's literally sitting <laughs> in a ring with a backdrop of. Is there 12 Hall of Famers on that yeah. poster behind you? Sure to turn this around a bit for you to show you in case I mess it up a bit. Want me to try it? Yeah, yeah, try yeah, it. yeah, yeah, why yeah. Not? Right. You can always edit it out if it messes up. <laughs> my wife set it. My wife set it up. You can see it now. Look, the one oh. that is Hopkins. Hopkins. That's Marquez, Vinny Pazienza, Chiquita Gonzalez, um, Winky Wright, um, Joel Casimore, who actually beat me in the Olympic final. He's on it too. He was a world champion as well. And then there's some. That's my little head here. Mm-hmm. This guy, yeah. Leroy Healy, he passed away actually before the induction. And this guy, Bobby Shacon, was the world champion in the 80s. He passed away too. So you've got a lot of world champions in them. That, is that, is that your gym? Yeah, it's in, it's in my garage. My garage is about, um, about 40 feet by 20 feet, so I can fit a ring. And there's like two heavy bags, speed bag, 
a little bathroom as well. So you got a spur bedroom, win. What's that? You got a spur bedroom over there? If I can the <laughs> I've got a spur. I've got a couple of spur bedrooms. Might have to fight my daughter for a point. <laughs> so, Wayne, next time I'm over in Vegas for a lads' holiday, and I need to sweat out the drink from the night oh, before. Yeah. I need to come to your gym. Seriously. If you're in Vegas, come here. You guys can come here. You're welcome to come here. Legend, man. Oh, happy day. Do you, do you train Brian Collins sometimes? I've been training Brian since um, seven years ago. California, I was there. Um, I was back in, I was there for six, six years, and I came back about a year ago. And then I was going back every other week. And then the pandemic hit last March. Then the, the, the gyms in California are just starting to open again, 10% capacity. That's it. But Brian, I've been training Brian. You know, one of the funny, he's one of the funniest guys in the world because he's a comedian, but he's an actor as well. And he's one of the nicest guys you could ever meet. But you know what? He's been in the ring here with the world champion. Um, he sparred with me, of course, but he's with um, Victor Ortiz and stuff. He's he sparred with him. So he, he gets in there with people. He well, that's great. What he's doing. And he, he, he knows how to do defense and stuff. And um, he loves it. He loves it. I've seen him move around a bit. Uh, I've seen him talking to Shaw about it loads, and they keep each other going. But he looks like he can sort of he can move. And we're looking at an opponent a minute for Ryan here, because Ryan's looking to get into the sort of celebrity boxing matches. So Brian Cullen fancies it. Well, Brendan, Brendan, him and Brendan do the podcast. Got a great guy. I was I said to Brian before Shaw got to the end of his career, I said, bring him in. And I'll teach him real boxing because he he's, he had no no boxing skills. But he's seen Brian. He's seen Brian was pretty good. You know, even Joe Rogan, he's seen Brian was pretty good as well. But I tried to get Demons in and, and the spar with Brian, they wouldn't do it. So <laughs> that, that tells you something. Yeah, Joe Rogan would only do it if he can throw his leg kicks. I've seen Joe, them on YouTube. Joe, Joe can kick, he can kick, but boxing is different. You know, if you can stay on your feet in MMA, you do pretty well. Yeah. What's it like living, sort of making that transformation from the streets of Belfast, like growing up sort of West Belfast, Shankle, to now being out in the sun. Do you miss home at all? Or? How old are you guys? 25. And then 26. 27. Okay, I came here on February 20th, 20th. I was here 28 years. So I came here when I was just 22. My wife was my girlfriend. She was, she was 19. And we didn't know one person in the whole of America. So... I was I was contracted to come here with Eddie, Eddie Fudge, my coach. So I flew I flew over here on the February twentieth, nineteen eighty three. Flew from Belfast to LA. Had my pro debut three days later, and then came, and then came, came to Vegas on the twenty fourth. And it was like walking into like a movie set because I'd seen Vegas on the in movies like the Strip and stuff, and and you're you're walking around looking at the casinos and stuff like that. You're like in awe, but. You sort of get fed up with the casinos, the slot machines and stuff like that after a while. <laughs> and we, we used to live right beside the strip, but then we moved to the suburbs, which was the suburbs. Then we, we bought our first home. And then Vegas spread out even more, even more. And now there's about a half a million people. Now there's about three million. So it's turned into a big city. And yeah. it's a great city to live because you've got the nice hotels, um, great restaurants, you get the casinos if you want them. And um, if you live in the suburbs, you can go down visit that for a few days during a week and then go back to your own house. So, which is, it's always go back, good to go back to your own house after you get a slot machine, bring it over, ding, 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 ding. But think it's a great city to go to even if you're not a gambler going away. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually love to go myself. I've never been, but it's on the... You've never been, on well, it's, it's changed so much since, say, 20-something years. And it's, you know, some, some of the great... It used to be a cheap city, but not anymore. It's expensive yeah. here. Everything is expensive, but you can still have a, a great time and um, and have fun. And, and um, the strip is reopening now because of the pandemic, and you're starting to see the crowds come back to Vegas. Hopefully, we'll be there soon in your uh, in your gym there, and Ryan can spar someone. Great corner, great corner. <laughs> <laughs> Give me Joe Rogan. Bring it right back to the start with you. Um, you grew up in the midst of the troubles. You grew up on the shankle. What, how did you first get into boxing? What was it that attracted you to the sport at the very beginning? Well, the funny thing is, I was I was actually born, when people say they're born on the Shankill, I was actually born at home in Percy Street on the Shankill, right, right behind where the Les Chandler is. And um, then we moved to the suburbs, the Highfield Estate in the, the greater Shankill area. So I've always been, I say I was born right on the Shankill. And I used to see all, I used to see all the troubles and stuff, all my you know, people get involved in the 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 
terrorist things and shit like that. But I always, you know, boxing was a type of sport that always crossed divides. And as a young kid, I started when I was seven years old, eight, nine, 10, 11. We would go to the Falls Road to maybe a drinking club and they would have fights, like boxing fights, and then they'd have entertainment afterwards. And then they would come to the Shankle Road and the same thing would happen there. And there was never any trouble. And I'd say it's like football as well. There's no, it crosses all divides. And um, boxing, it's, it, it didn't bring people, to, it just brought people together because they wanted to, you know, because, and um, I'd say, I always just thought, you know, Belfast is a great city. Um, Northern Ireland is a great city. Ireland is a great city, a great country. But you think um, with such a small nation like ours, that if people came together, be it a greater country, but there's always politics involved. And I say, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, that I was part of the, the, the trouble and stuff. Cause I, I remember the, I remember getting stopped by the soldiers and all when I was running them one and stuff. They say, where are you going? I'm like, I'm not running. You know, what, what are you talking about? And I used to get hassled like that my, when I drove my car back and forward to my, my wife's, it was my girlfriend at the time over the East Belfast. And um, they stop you every single line. I used to hate that. Every single line they stop you and give you your ID and stuff. And it was just like harassment almost. And um, so I'm glad that's all stopped as well. And, um, and things are sort of back to some sort of normal life. And I say there's, there's going to be religion problems always, but I don't know why, but there's, there's always well because I think there's money involved. Yeah, 100%. I think like we, we us three have been very lucky. We were like post-conflict babies. Like we were all born sort of mid-90s. So we have no idea. Like I, I'll keep my dad going being like, oh, we had it worse. Like we have bomb scars and all. And he's like, shut up. <laughs> That's what I said. Somebody I said, if there's a bomb scar, this is my American. I did actually a podcast last week, an American one, and with Mickey Mickey Ward. He was one of the guests as well. And um, they said to me, what was it like? I said, well, there was bomb scars and the bombs gone off. And they're like, what? I said, it's okay. If it was a bomb scar, nothing happened. And, and they looked at me like, nuts. But I remember, I remember I was in Belfast in 2000. I thought I was there in 2002. I mean, my, my team were over with me, my lawyers in America, my trainers in America. And we had the, our weigh-in at the Europa Hotel, the most bombed hotel in the world. And um, during the weigh-in, there was a bomb scare. And it was, so funny. It was, it was the funniest thing ever, because I'm like, I said to my, my lawyer, he's from Oklahoma, I said, like, we'll just walk out to the back. And he's like, we're going to walk out the back? What are you talking about? We're going to get out of here. I said, don't worry, it's going to bomb scare. It's bomb going to walk out. <laughs> he was freaked out, but I'm like, that's normal life growing up in Belfast. You know, we heard, I heard bombs going off all the time. I remember the bomb went off in Highfield Estate. A guy was making a bomb, he blew the community centre to pieces and um, blew all the windows out in the neighbourhood. And I say, I remember running down to the, the community centre because that's what you do. You ran towards the bomb when you were like 11 years old or something. And um, everybody ran down. My dad said to me, what, get you, get you back home, the guys. Head was blown off and stuck to the scene in the half because half the cinema is still still there and it was stuck to the, the scene of the, the, of the community center. But that was normal, you know. I've seen I've seen a lot of like the paramilitary stuff, knee cabins and stuff like that, and, and it was all it was all just it's like over here with the mafia, you know. What I mean, it's sort of like like we had that over there a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Then when you come here, you see all the, the movies and like the 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 Godfather and stuff and the stuff like that. So it's, it's over in Belfast, it was normal walking into the store and they had a metal detector. To, he's never had here. When me and my wife walking into like a store here, we, we sort of were waiting for somebody to do the metal detector, but it didn't happen. And then when you came here, you go to, at the airport, you could actually walk right up to the gate where people walked out. And in Belfast, you could never do that. So when you go to, when you grow up that way, you think it's a normal life, but then when you go to a different country, you realize, What's well, that normal? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely not been normal about it. But you, you were saying there as well, like you, you were literally in the heart of it, like in the heart of the conflict. Shankle Road and Falls Road, like even people outside of Belfast or the north and stuff, they they know them two roads, they're the two most famous roads. Yeah. For you as an eighteen-year-old, getting picked, you know, to represent Ireland at the Olympics and then being asked to carry the Irish flag. Was, did that feel like a massive weight of responsibility and like a scurry sort of decision to, to make? Well, they, they asked, I was the youngest member of the team at the time. It's, never, it's not just the youngest member of the team carried the flag, but I remember them putting it to me. Pat McCurry, our team manager, like he said, um, they want you to carry the, the flag to go, go home th- or go away and think about it. But I didn't have nothing to think about because it was, 
I was fighting for Ireland, you know, and it was like, what do they want me to say no? You know, I'm representing the country and um, they want to want to move. I think maybe there's some, people, some people are expecting me to say no, but I'm like, no, I'm a sportsman, I'm a politician, I'll, I'll, I'll carry this flag because, you know, and then people said it's going to be a lot of trouble back home and stuff. There never was trouble. In fact, when I went back home, a guy called Davy Larmer, he was a former British um, champion for the pro. He, he trained, he was from our gym. And they had the, the Shanker Road flute band walk me down from Highfield Estate down to the Shanker Road supporters, a Rangers supporters club, and have a party for me after I carried the flag. They That's brought me down to the bus. Unreal. So if there was any hassle at all, then why would they have that for me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you think that do you think that's like what Carl, I suppose Carl Frampton you obviously had the likes of Barry McGuigan as well but like they sort of I'm sure Carl as well looked at that and just thought you know what like coming from the the other side himself like we're we're all Catholics but coming from like the Protestant side he thought you know what like he's seen what you've done and he thought I want to emulate that I want to I want to have both sides of community like and bring them both together through boxing and sort of like yeah. sort of what you've done yeah well I say boxing Always brought people together even before the trouble started back in the when Randy Manningham was world champion and stuff in the 40s and 50s. So it's always did that and say Barry McGuigan was my hero. Mm-hmm. And and I'm I'm Carl I'm Carl Fratton's hero. I, mm-hmm. I talk to Carl all the time, he's in Dubai at the minute for next week. But um he brought he brought people together because he, he trained out of the, you know, he's he ended up in the Holy Family gym, which a Protestant from where he's from going to the Holy Family. So it was there was never any problems going to other gyms. Is it is like I went, to, I trained in the Holy Trinity gym sometime, Barney Eastridge gym down um, Kessel Street. My brother was a pro, so I went down and trained with him and sparred with like Dave McCauley, Paul Hagnison, and guys like that, and Fidel Bassa, who beat, beat McCauley twice. So I, I always, it always crossed divides, and there was never any hassle for fighters going to certain gyms and they come to the Shankle, let's say the Falls, and there was never any trouble in boxing. With um, religion, there never was. Yeah, you you went on to win a silver medal at the, at the Olympics in in Barcelona, and then obviously gold in, in Commonwealth. Did that like sort of change your life? So like that during that time, was that like basically you probably didn't have to pay for a Pentagon in the Shankill. <laughs> so you went on and done that, and like so like you've you've arrived. What was that well, whole fact, experience like? Well, my, my first Olympics, as you we were talking about the carrying the flag, I was, I was seventeen when I qualified for the Olympics that year. And I just turned senior that year. I was because 17 is the youngest you can be a senior. So that year I won the youth, junior and senior title within a year. And they put me in with like a 27-year-old guy and I, I stopped him. And then they put me in with him again. They were trying to get me beat because they didn't want me to go to the Olympics. <laughs> but then I fought, I fought a Cuban and I fought the late, everybody knows the late Turgetti. And then I fought him up in, up in Derry, actually. Ireland versus Canada. So... That was my goal was to go to the Olympics and then go pro. But my first Olympics, to say I was young and I thought it was a full grown man. I was, I, I was fighting actually seven and a half stone. That's what I weighed, seven and a half stone, soaking wet. And, um, and then when I went to Commonwealth Games two years later, 1990, I was, I was eight stone. So I thought I was a man, but I was still grown. I was still late growth. And, um, and then 92 was, uh, was I was up the, Eight and a half stone, which was my sort of weight for, throughout my career. But um, the Commonwealth Games, getting the medal in, in Auckland, New Zealand, the gold medal. It was our first gold medal in boxing since since, since Brian McGuigan in '78. So, and I didn't even know that till till I got it. But that was emotional because the, the machine broke down, and a, a guy from Belfast originally, who lived over there, was one of the officials, and he stood up and sang "Danny Boy." So the whole arena started singing "Danny Boy" too, and. Getting that medal for your for your country was was it was emotional, but I was young and I thought I was going to go pro. But then my amateur coach Harry Robinson convinced me to stay amateur because I was still a, a little 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 boy like you guys are. I, I was still I was 19 years old, but I, I was just a little kid really. And then I waited for the Olympics because I became Ireland's first ever like sort of pet amateur. They sort of sponsored me to stay amateur for two more years. And I would promise to stay amateur before I, I wouldn't go pro till two years till after the Olympics. So I did that. I got the silver medal. And um, it was Ireland's first silver medal since 1956. And um, Northern Ireland has won a silver medal since that, since I won my silver medal. Mm-hmm. And Michael Kurth that year, he got the, our first gold liver. So it was a great Olympics for us. 
Um, without any funding, we didn't you know, see, they weren't getting any funding the way they are at the minute, but the amateurs are getting paid 90 grand a year and stuff. So we weren't getting it. We just sort of focused on what we had to do and we did whatever we had, we, we worked with it and we had success. But as I say, that Olympics was my stepping stone to get a good contract to go pro because, you know, without, without a medal of any, of any sort, you're probably not going to get a, probably going to fight for 500 quid or something. Really, you'd be, you'd be working full time and not be able to put the effort in. But as I say, now it's changed a lot where people are full time pros and, and we've had so many pros over the last decade, which is when I turned pro, there was hardly anybody. Dave you McCoy was at the. 93, didn't you? Yeah, I just I signed in '92, but I didn't I didn't I didn't fight till '93. Um, but you had Dave McCauley was a world champion. He was at the end of his career, and he just lost his belt. And then apart from that, there was really nobody. There was no like Barney Eastwood was the the big promoter, and I was going to sign with him, but it didn't work out. I'm always thankful for him for letting me train in his gym, of course. But then he didn't. That was him finish as well. So. There was no other options. It was England. It was really Frank Warren was sort of on the scene, like I called Mickey Duff. He talked to me at the Olympics actually. But then I had this offer to come to America with a guy called Matt Tinley. And then of course, when they offered me Eddie Fudge, it was like like Premier League champions Liverpool going to the Premier League. <laughs> 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 when, whenever uh, you turned over pro you were obviously a world class amateur a lot of world class amateurs find it hard adapting to the pro game it seems like you were you know tailor made for both why was that why do you think you were so good whenever you turned over to the pro game as well well thanks for saying it was good <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it was because I loved mixing with the pros and the and sparring and stuff like that and you weren't allowed to do it the amateurs people wouldn't say you can't spar with pros but my old, my brother was five years older. He was a pro, and he he trained at Barney's gym, and um, and that's why, as I say, I sparred with Dave McCauley, you know, Paul Hagenson, who was a WBC featherweight champion, and Fidel Basa, who beat Dave McCauley twice, and fight of the year fights are unbelievable. He wanted to spar me, and I was down there in the gym, and he asked to spar me. So if somebody asked you to spar, you world champion asked some young kid to spar. I'm like this, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And the experience I got with them guys, because they weren't, they weren't going that hard on I me. Mean, they were going, they were, they weren't trying to knock me out. But I was, I was just going full throttle. I was a kid, and um, just by getting in the ring with them guys, just taught me a lot. And say, Davy Larmer was trained out of our gym, Albert Foundry gym, and, and he used to take me around as a kid as well. And just watching and, and them guys, and then getting in the ring with them is like a different level. And that's why I think when I turned pro, I had that amateur pro style. And I could make the adaption pretty easily because I had that background of just mixing pros. Yeah, it was mad because you you obviously won your your first world title like two years into being a pro over in Japan, um, and that probably what I think I made you like Ireland's first ever WBC champion as well. Basically, just going to ask now this might be a tough question, but winning that WC, WBC belt right or an Olympic silver medal, if you had to choose, like what was the better feeling? What would it be? WBC. Yeah. <laughs> no, the funny thing when you, when you mention anything about your career, anybody for, who's from Ireland, North or South, who was who was alive at that time, not you guys. Um, <laughs> when you, they always say to me, "I remember where I was when you won that Olympic medal." They, it's like almost they remember where they were, what pub they were in, where they were sitting watching the fight. And it's like they remember it. And as I say, when we we arrived in Dublin. We were actually arrived in the airport at like three or four in the morning. It was 4,000 people at the airport in Dublin. And then the next day on the street, it took us down the bus with 50,000 people on O'Connell Street. So it was our first gold on our first silver in 30, 30 first gold ever, first um, silver in 36 years. It was, they were celebrating for six months. They really were. I'm telling you, you did PR work mostly down like south and up and like up in Donegal and stuff. And, like you're back and forth every week doing this, doing that, doing a lot of stuff. And I was training still. I kept training and I was, I was drinking a little bit too much. But <laughs> I kept training and kept myself in shape. But I, I, brought, I cracked my cheekbone in three places in the semi-final of the Olympics and busted the nerve right here, which is still to this day like pins and needles. And um, so I couldn't get hit on for like five months after the Olympics. So I, I kept training fitness-wise. And then uh, I was we were talking to like promoters and then Matt Tinley came along about November of that year of 92 and then 
Byron McWiggan was actually with him when they came over to, to meet me in Dublin at the hotel. And then we signed a contract in February. And I mean, I mean there was, the hardest thing was for me really was, was leaving Belfast. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, 100%. Everybody knows me on the Olympic team. I was always a guy who couldn't wait to go home. You know, when I went away to a trip like Australia, New Zealand, you know, all around America, I'm like, I can't wait to go back to Belfast. I want to go back to Belfast. I miss it. I miss it. And then when somebody comes to you and says you're training, oh, you're going to go to the American train with Eddie Fudge. Like, what? He's going to train me? Eddie Fudge was like, if you look him up, he trained 20 world champions. At the time I, I came here, he was training Riddick Bowe, who was a heavyweight champion of the world. And a guy called Mike McCallum, who was a three-time world champion. And he was 82, and he wasn't going to take anybody else on, but he, he seen me at the Olympics and, and took me on. And I'm thankful he did because, you know, he's the reason why I became champion. He's on my wall over here. It's, He's the first pitcher when you walk into my garage mm-hmm. and he's responsible for me becoming world champion. And the reason why I had to leave Belfast was to come to him. Mm-hmm. But what, what, I mean? what, what was the, what was it like fighting in Japan for a world title? Cause like most people fight for their title in like Britain, America, maybe Germany or something, but Japan seems a mad one. Like the atmosphere must've been ridiculous. Well, what we prepared, right? We trained here and then we went to Utah for a few weeks at altitude. And then we went, we stopped off in Hawaii for a week, which was good for my sparring partners, but not me. <laughs> I was having fun. But then we went to, to um, Japan for a week. We weren't sure if they were going to treat us well or not. But when we got there, it was like, as soon as you got to the airport, the camera was on you. And um, they treated me really well. They had the right food. They had, um, had like a, a security guard with me, which they didn't need, but they were just, just in case something happened. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But, you know, I didn't know going there. I didn't know until, you know, Randall Monroe, he's a former fighter from mm-hmm. Britain. He, he went to Japan, like, I'm not sure if it's like six, seven years ago, whatever. And, and I didn't know at the time that no fighter had ever went from Ireland or, or Britain and won a world championship there. I didn't know that. I didn't know that till he fought. Now you're talking about 15 years after I won it. And um, so I didn't know the, the, that's how hard it was to try to win the championship. And I say no, no Irish fighter ever won a WBC belt either. And that's a belt I always wanted because when I was 15, I, I wanted to be a world champion, but I'm not disrespecting any other belts. But when you see Muhammad Ali wearing that belt, you look as a kid, you look at him and think, I want that as well. And that's why I wanted the green and gold belt. And um, I had opportunities to fight for other ones at that time, but I went straight to the, the WBC. And um, Yakishiji, that's his name, Yoshi Yakishiji, pronounce that one. <laughs> he, he was a world champion and he, he was making the fifth defense of his world championship in, in his home country, in his home, his home city as well. So the odds were against me and we knew that, get in there, but with two American judges and a Korean judge and um, we went out there and, and we pulled it off. And one judge, the Korean judge, gave against me by one point, but the other judges gave it to me by three or four points. And Yakishiji was a was a great champion, put on the pressure in the last the last two rounds. It's when the, the Japanese people are pretty quiet, they sort of just applaud. But the last two rounds, they sort of uproared, got behind their guy because they knew he was behind. And I get shivers down my spine. But Eddie said to me, Eddie Fudge said in the corner, 11 to 12, go out there and work your job, just move around, move around. You've got enough rounds in the bank, but just just try to be competitive. And I did that in the last two rounds and, and um, then my hands were raised. It was, and then all I heard was, McCullough-san, McCullough-san. They didn't say William McCullough, they said, McCullough-san, chapter one. <laughs> 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 so when you won the world title, you didn't get your name pronounced right? No, that's just the way they said it. But, but my hand was a split decision, my hand was raised and, um, I would have given Yakashiji a rematch, but he retired after that. He was only 26 and he retired. And, and I heard he had promoter problems and stuff like that. I think that's it's harder to be a professional world champion than it would be to, to win a Olympic medals are hard to come by, of course. But becoming a world professional champion is, is tough. 
you know, you've no headgear on you, you've no, the gloves are tiny. And after that fight, my face was still pretty busted up and I won the fight, you know what I mean? So it's, it's a tough sport, but I think it's a great sport in the world. Yeah, Wayne, you, you were known as like a, a relentless fighter and in my opinion and a lot of people's opinions, better chin than Carl Frotch. Would you agree? Carl <laughs> 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 Frotch is a good guy. I know Carl really well. My buddy, um, Robert McCracken, actually trains Joshua. Um, he trained him as well, but Carl's a good guy. He was a good... Carl had that... He had that awkward style, you know what I mean? But he was successful. Mm-hmm. He was successful what he did. He's a strong guy. And I remember watching him and David Hay, actually... Even they won silver and he won a bronze at the World Amateurs in Belfast in 2001. Because I was doing the BBC broadcasting for two weeks. And I remember both them guys getting a bronze and a silver medal in. So both guys became world champion pros. Yeah. So you, you obviously fought the likes of Prince Nassim and Eric Morales. So who had harder between them two, do you think? That's a question that people put to me. The funny thing, it's only put that question to me about five years ago on social media. And... Hamed, Hamed had super strength, and I say he knocked out 18 guys in a row before he fought me. I moved up two divisions. And Morales was at the division below, but he's bigger. Morales was a big guy at eight stone 10. And um, Hamed was more, you could sort of see his punches coming, you know what I mean? Mm. And um, Morales was at Tommy Hearn's pinpoint one, two shot just to knock her head off your shoulders, and you got the shivers down your spine <laughs> and um, on your, on your side, left side and back of me. And um, Morales hit me hard in the first round. And the 12th round, he was hit me still as hard. <laughs> and I, and I was trying, he was trying to put the ninth round, but, but he, out of both guys, Morales hit the hardest. No question. No question. Hamed had strength. And the first words Hamed said to me afterwards was I, I, unbelievable strength, like the physical strength. Mm-hmm. But with Morales, he hit, he hit so hard. He just, for, he was trying to knock me out the last round, although he was, he was half dead. He was, he was burnt out, but he couldn't. He hit me so hard. And say, my friend Miguel Diaz was his, was his cut man in the corner, and he told he told Morales told me Miguel Diaz that if he hit me any harder, he's gonna break both his hands. My hands like a rock. So. But was, me and Morales are actually good friends to this day. We I, we actually we talk every other week, and um and he actually talked about doing an exhibition match because there's all these exhibitions matches coming up so that'd be fun but I think he's I think he weighs me up about, about 50 pound like, like, <laughs> like so would you, would you do that well. what's that is an exhibition on the cards for you at some point what we're talking about I've, I've talked to him I mean he said to me he said to me about when Julio Arcee did an exhibition with Jorge Arce about two months ago in Mexico Morales said to me oh, I have to lose some weight first and I said I wrote back to him and says I tell you what, you, you come to Vegas and I'll train you here and get you ready for me. <laughs> <laughs> tell you what, that would be an amazing documentary if you've done that. It's an exhibition match anyway, so I think that'd be fun if I trained him to get him ready for me. It'd be a funny thing. Yeah. I'm ready to go anyway. Was that <laughs> true that he wanted to quit after the ninth round? Yeah, he, if you look at the fight, look at the, the ninth round, he... He's actually not sitting on the stool where I'm sitting on the stool. He's actually lands well <laughs> and he, he wanted to quit. And I said it, I said to I said to people to I said, I wish he would have quit. <laughs> 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 because he was he was hitting me so hard, you know what I mean? And he, you know, I, I could see him fading away. And the, and the funny thing is when the fight was over, Hamid was the main event that night against a guy called Caesar Soda. And um, I went into Morales' dress room and I was just I had hard fights all the time that didn't bother me. And Morales was sitting on a, a massage table wrapped in a big jacket. He was sitting like a shivering. He was sitting shivering. And I'm like, I say, are you okay? And he just, he just stood up, didn't say anything. His coach was there. He took off his, his big thick jacket and took off his track suit top and gave it to me. And I've never had anybody do that in the pro ranks. In the amateurs, you would change singlets and stuff like that. But for him to do that to me, I thought it was just respect. And um, he, was, yeah. he, was, he was sore around it because I had him in the body pretty hard. So I took off my jacket and gave it to him. And then we, that's when we became friends. That was 1999. We became friends to this day, you know what I mean? And it, boxing, you can make sort of friends like that. We're two guys who stand toe-to-toe for 12 rounds for 36 minutes. We beat the crap out of each other, become friends. It's weird enough. But you get that respect for each other. And I say, you do, in the ring, you, do, you want to win the fight 
on points by knockout. You want to, you know, it's a hurt business, but you don't want to hurt anybody permanently. You know what I mean? It's in boxing, you just want to go out there and win the fight, and you never want to hurt anybody like, like a, like permanently, like a, something happens to them because there's so many, it's a dangerous sport. It's a, a lot of people got blood clots and stuff like that. I just want to win the fight as quick as possible on points or, or, or by knockout, and then everybody's okay. Shake hands and your friends. And now that it's all said and done, sorry, Ryan. Now that it's all said and done, when what would you say was your greatest moment in boxing? Was it that that win in Japan? It's all said and done. What 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 are you talking about? Yeah, he's still got an exhibition <laughs> to go. He's been fighting a few months. <laughs> <laughs> you must have had a few scraps in the Las Vegas Strip win. What's that? You must have had a few scraps in the Las Vegas Strip. boxing. You know, fighters come and go, they retire, they go back, they retire, they go back, they retire, they go back. I sort of, I fought, I think it was 12 years ago, in my last fight. I shouldn't have fought the fight, I was, I was completely injured, but I didn't make excuses. And um, I just sort of said to my wife, I'm just going to ride off into the sunset, I'm not going to retire because if something does happen right, if somebody says come back, then they're going to throw it in your face, the media. You know what I mean? And um, so I sort of just went, Rode into the sunset and sort of kept training all the time. I was training's good for the mind. And um, I just said to my people, say, Oh, you still fine? I said, No, I'm just, I'm just training. Are you retired? I'm like, I'm just sort of just going to take it easy. They want, you, they want you to say, I'm retired. You know what I mean? But the real people know you are, you know what I mean? You, you know who you are yourself. Or are you? Or are you? <laughs> <laughs> I can still do it. What happens? I'm 50 years old now. Bernard Hopkins, the guy in the middle up there, he's, um, he thought he was 52 and he was beaten at 51 years old. He was still world champion. No, it's not like he can't do it. But I came to a point in my career that, that I tried to get the young guys to fight me and they wouldn't do it. You know what I mean? When I was up and coming, I fought former world champions to get that experience. And the chances of them beating him was pretty high. But you have to sort of fight that guy a little bit better and you maybe so you can you can get better and, and, and become champion. But guys didn't want to do that back then when I was I was like 37 years old. Nobody wanted to do it because, because I've never hit the canvas my whole career. I've never been on the canvas amateur and pro and 353 amateur and pro fights. So there's not a lot of people can say that. And um, I can say that. You know, if I don't fight again in my life, I've never touched a canvas amateur pro. You know, my one of Jake Lamada, the Raging Bull, you know, he's Julio Cesar Chavez, he's on my wall here. And um, both them guys hit the, hit the canvas in the, later in their career when they went on too long. And I haven't hit the canvas, so, you know, Ring Magazine gave me the best chin in boxing back in like 2000, 2001 or something. And I thought, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but I had, I had good defense, I didn't know how to catch a shell together, catch this. Eddie taught me that. But when I did get hit up the head, thankfully I had a good chin. And the truth is, I got MRI scans when I was younger, and the, the doctor said my skull is, is actually twice as thick as the average person. So, who the RC Chavez is skull is the same way. So, I will say to people, maybe it's like a shock absorber, but then the punch hit registers to the brain, it stops and forgets. But as I say back home, you're as thick as champ. I am as thick as champ. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. When, when, when you were talking about Morales, there it just sort of hit me that. You sure are you uh, two of the most famous sort of greatest fights ever in anyone's book would be sort of Morales Barrera and Gotti Ward, and you shared the ring with both Gotti and Morales. Is that mental for you to think of it? Yeah, well, Morales and Barrera fought a few times. Gotti, say Gotti's picture right here, and I did. I said I did a podcast like last week with Mickey Ward, and like Gotti, you know, I say I fought Gotti in, in '88, Ireland versus Canada on Derry, and um, I stopped him the first round, but. I didn't meet him again until like 2000 up in New York. And he walked past me. He was bigger then. He was a bigger guy. And he walked past me and he said, do you remember me? And I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> I was not smaller than him then, but, but I was a fan of his actually. When, when he, I'd love to have just sat and talked to him, but it's unfortunately a tragedy in his life. But the fight suddenly came and he was, because after he fought me, he fought two days later because his, his corner threw in the towel and it was Ireland versus Canada. And had I given him another standing county, we've been TKO'd, which means he couldn't have fought for like 30 days. 
So they threw in the talent for two standing counts. And I said to him that night, will you change singlets with me? And he's told me to come, his next fight was in the Europa Hotel. He said, well, I come to the fight two days later. So I went to fight two days later. He knocked the guy out, like won the first round, and an Irish guy. And then we, we I went backstage and we changed singlets. So I, I have a singlet as well. And then the, you know, Morales, Morales is, I would love to have got a rematch Morales, but I don't think he wanted one with me. <laughs> right, right, after, right after he fought me, he moved up a weight and fought Barrera, and he beat Barrera. And um, so the being in the ring with the guys they got in the fight total toe for 12 rounds. Like a tour getting Mickey Ward, the first fight and second fight. Holy crap. That, that's first, the first fight, Mickey Ward hit Getty with the left hook to body, a signature punch. And I say, when you get hit with that shed right here, if you go down to the canvas, 99.9% of the fighters hit the canvas will knock it up. I said, if your name, I would say to people, if your name is a tour Getty, you get back up again. <laughs> but he's just, He's just crazy, but you know, Delahoy got knocked out with the shot. Huffman's knocked Delahoy with the shot to the body. Ricky Hatton ended his career with the, the like a European guy with the left hook to the body as well. So them shots are hard to, to cope with. If you get hit with that shot, you're, you're better standing up because if you once you bend over, you'll knock it up again. So I teach people if they get hit with the left hook to the body to sort of just grab the person like that and hold on to them for a few seconds. Because if you bend over and hit the canvas, your chances of getting up it's slim because you're not you're not you're not called a couture Getty. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my well, go-to shot win for when I fight Brent Schaub. Brent's like this, so he's wide open. This shot's here, hit me here. That left took the body, or Mickey Ward used to walk in and said he used to touch it here and then drop the body shot. He blinds you with this one and hits you with that one. So the, you think he's going to do that? He wants you to do this, so you lift your hand up to block it and you leave that open. Yeah. So Mickey Ward was incredible. Specialist is that one of the best body punches. And a guy called Mike McCullen, I say I talked about when I when I first came here. He's a Jamaican guy. He won three world championships, and he's of course he's in the sixties now. But he they called him the body snatcher, and um, he taught me how to throw the body shots because we were in the same camp together. He would triple left hooks, right hooks to body, uppercuts to body. He was a master at, at that. And um, Mike McCullen was probably the best body puncher in professional boxing history. Mickey Ward probably has the best left too for the body in boxing history. Yeah, 100%. Finally, uh, Wayne, I know you always say you're, you're not a politician, you're a fighter, but I just want to get your opinion on this. This week, there's, don't worry, don't worry, but this <laughs> week, there's been, uh, there's been a lot of sort of uproar in the Belfast boxing community because there was a hardship fund and they gave like 1.5 million to like a, a golf club and then like 60,000 split between seven boxing clubs. Do you think, considering how much boxing is given to Belfast as a city, do you think it's undervalued? 50,000, that's a lot of money for them. When they're getting one point some million. Boxing's never changed. Boxing, it was a poor man's sport, you know what I mean? And as I say, in the Olympics for the whole of Ireland, boxing's brought the most medals. You know what I mean? Commonwealth Games were successful in Commonwealth Games, gold medals. Um, Michael Cannon was a world amateur champion, you know what I mean? So with has success and what, what more what more do the amateurs professionals what what more do the amateurs have to do over there? I mean what they have to do to get the money and they get the funding. Fifty thousand is is a joke to spread it through the club. That's so terrible. It's ridiculous. As I say my amateur gym when I was training we had no electricity, no heating. We had a generator to run our run the power in our gym. It's like like, like the petrol generator and um, Harry Robinson, my coach you know, our gym was terrible. We had when it rain when, it, when the rain came down, the floorboards in the gym were wood, so they start floating. So all the work had to be done in the ring. And never complained about it. You know, trying to make weight for, for fights was hard. So my amateur coach built a he built a sauna so that I could jump rope in it. Otherwise, I wouldn't made weight. We had no we had no electricity. And then in 1991, I won the, the gold medal. They put in, they fixed it up as much as they could, but it was still terrible. Asbestos roof to this day still has an asbestos roof, and it's just there's no insulation in the roof, so the heat goes straight out. There's we have no showers in it, no running water, no toilet. Our toilet was at the back wall behind behind the gym and Albert Foundry. And never complained, never got the money. And say Davy Lammer got a Commonwealth gold and a Commonwealth bronze and became British champion, and we still didn't get anything. 
So for you to say 50,000, that's it's, it's horrendous, but some things never change, you know what I mean? It's just, I will say, and boxing, boxing's a type of sport. Boxing, when your career's all said and done. Over here, you have football, basketball, baseball. They all have pensions. They all have unions. But boxing doesn't have that. And unfortunately, a lot of fighters end up broke after they're finished and then nobody really cares about them but their friends. And um, boxing, as you say, generates the most money, but there's still no boxers union or boxers pension schemes. And they say, with well, the amateur system, they've been so, they've been so successful with this, this um, funding they've been getting with the special training and stuff. But one of my good friends, actually, Nicholas Cruz Hernandez, he was our coach for the Olympics in 92, the Cuban, He's, they kicked him out. And as I said earlier on, Michael Cruz and me got gold and silver in 92 without any funding. Nicholas Cruz was our coach. Most successful Olympics ever for, for Ireland, the men's. And um, they kicked him out. He's, he's in, he, lives down in, he lives in Dublin, outside Dublin somewhere, training people, um, boxing and Spanish in a prison. Crazy. I talked talk to him every week and he's the best coach we ever had. Crazy, like but for some reason, the politics of the sport have kicked him out. And some of the people that was actually on the team with me back then, they were actually running the system now, which doesn't make sense either. I'm not going to name names or badmouth anybody, but they're being, they're treating people almost worse than we were treated. Crazy. You know, so it's unfortunate because if I'm, if I'm going to help as a boxer, I want to help the boxer more than anybody else. And I've, I've put my, no, I've put my services out to them. Back in 2001, I was told by the president of Irish boxing and the Ulster president, I was going to go back over there and start training the Olympic team. And they, they said, yes, yes, yes. And all of a sudden it went quiet and then they started getting this funded and people were getting paid. And then all of a sudden I didn't hear anything. So I just sort of just focused on staying here and, and training people here. And then I see all the people training people. And I'm thinking, well, anybody will do anything for a cozy, cozy little job, you know what I mean? But they should give boxing millions. Definitely. Because if you go around a lot of the gyms in, in Northern Ireland, even the whole of Ireland, some of the gyms are horrible, you know what I mean? You know, some, some of them have, there's some good gyms, there's some good gyms, but I could take it to my old amateur gym and I'll show the roof, spaces roof, which should be illegal. You know I mean? Show us from a distance, Wayne. There's definitely... As far as I know, I haven't been back for a while, but there's no showers or toilets still. We didn't have a toilet. That's mental. Like. And no showers. So in the summertime, our, our gym is so hot because of the asbestos roof kept the heat in. But in the wintertime, it was the opposite. It was like, a, it was like walking into the morgue. And then you, most of the fights are all through the wintertime, so you're trying to make weight and stuff. And I would say, my coach called that sauna. Without that sauna, I wouldn't have made weight. But we didn't have anything. And the, when I came here, the facilities we had was unbelievable. And I'm thinking, I tell people over here, I didn't have any um, electricity or, or running water in my gym. They're like, what? Because over here, the, everything's fantastic. I mean, you got all the, the football pitches and the soccer, soccer, it's called soccer pitches, basketball courts everywhere. And the kids are always out playing in the parks, basketball. They're all lit up at night. They've always got something to do. Just see Belfast. the potential as well that could yeah. be made from the boxers if money was put in. All the schools do that as well. All the schools have all these fancy running tracks and stuff like that. We're back home in the wintertime when it started four or five in the afternoon. The lights go out in the park and there's nowhere to do. Mm-hmm. So you get into trouble. I didn't get into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that British soldier didn't stop you for nothing, win. <laughs> 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 Wayne, look, we could probably talk to you all night here, but we know you you need to go out and bask in that Las Vegas heat. So we just want to thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Really, well, really good for us to get you on. Thanks so much just for uh, thinking about me. I'm still a new guy. Can just wander around at the time, but you're definitely you still know, relevant. And look, we funny, want to get the you thing on. about morales now, man. People, the funny when people like train people for the first time, and people not even boxing people, and they're like, oh. I watched your fight with Morales and Hamed. Holy smoke! They're like that fights were unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable. So they're, they're one of the most watched um, fights of mine. Is the, the ones I lost. But <laughs> yeah, I beat Hamed. Hamed, Hamed ran for twelve rounds when he hit me hard in the first round. But 
Morales fight was a, a toe-to-toe war. He was just a legend. He's just but with Hamid, Hamid was just he ran away. You know what I mean? It's, but well, we would we would also organize um, an exhibition Mohammed, but I don't know if the weight difference there might be a bit ridiculous. Now. <laughs> don't have to cut leg off. Hamid, Hamid was small, but I know for a fact now that he's probably probably this size now. It's just unfortunate. <laughs> now the funny thing is, Hamid's a great guy. I met him when he fought Barrera in Vegas when he lost to Barrera. He called me up to meet him, and I and I thought I was being punked because when he was, when I when I fought him, he was a, a complete jerk. And um, I didn't say anything to him. I didn't. I didn't. The only thing I said to Hamid was, "When you hit me in the chin, you're going to run from me." And he, he was convinced he'd run that me out. But but then when he called me up here in Vegas, I'm thinking, "Wow!" So I went down to meet him. Got pictures with him. We had a chat. The gloves that we fought in actually fought him. I I I signed mine, and he signed my gloves as well. So they were collector's items. But he was normal. But it was weird because I didn't expect him to be like that. But then when the cameras come on him. He's like Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde. And, um, <laughs> but he just went a little bit too far, you know what I mean, between between fights. And you know, he's gonna knock me out and he's gonna finish me like it's gonna be he's gonna hurt me so bad in my last fight. Like I said earlier on, you don't want to hurt anybody permanently, you know what I mean? Yeah. But he did the first time he hit me in the chin, if you watch the first round, he hit me hard. I went, I went like that. And you've been watching, he ran for 12 rounds, you know. So I'm just a crazy thick skull. Irish man, he's just. Um, <laughs> it was all the blonde tips, mate. It was all the blonde tips. <laughs> the one or two left, yet, but the rest is starting to grey. The grey. <laughs> you've got, you've got a better hairline than me at fifty, man. So it's my fine. Daughter, my, my daughter's a, does hurt. She's a hairstylist, so I'll be fine. Ah, uh, you, you're laughing. <laughs> Funny thing is, I have to book. I have to book in still. It's weird. Uh, <laughs> no special well, treatment there. <laughs> Wayne, thank you so much for coming on. Look, we'd love to get you on again down the line. And especially, no, anytime, you've got my contact nice. Yeah, definitely. I, I'll give you a message, but definitely down the line. I want to thank all, all my fans and even you guys here. I say you weren't around, but you maybe you can become a fan if you watch the fights. Don't we? Oh, no, <laughs> we all watch the We've all watched them. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah. Thanks yeah. a million. Win really. It's an honor, really Win. Thank you. Yeah, bye bye. Bye bye. Well, guys, that's it for our episode with a pocket rocket, Win McCullough. We hope you enjoyed it. Before we go, I'd just like to shout out our American sponsors, Draft Kings and Manscaped. If you use our discount code Brawl Boxing, you'll get 20% off on Manscaped and free shipping there as well. So get all over that. Join us next week again when we'll be back with another very special guest. Thanks very much. I just want to shout out as well, Connell Hunter, World Heat, World Heat Customs. The top epic, shot, epic, ep- epic. Thank you so much. Love it. Cheers, Hunter. Oh, and down he goes. Right hand, left hand. And I don't think he's going to get up. I think it's all over. I think it's over. Is he going to get up? Can he get up?